Professor McQuaid, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Dimitri. Glad to be with you. I want to begin by talking about your book. Tell me about Attack Within. Well, um, this is a book about disinformation. Um, you know, I, I uh, spent my career as a national security prosecutor, and I now teach national security law at the University of Michigan Law School. And so uh, one thing I've been concerned about in recent years is the use of you know, propaganda, lies, false claims, disinformation, mostly online, to persuade people about things that are not true. And technology has, you know, it's a wonderful blessing and it's a wonderful tool, but it is also uh, a dangerous weapon in some hands because it allows people to spread false claims without revealing their identity. And uh, it's very difficult for people to assess the credibility of statements when they read them online. And so I think um, the book tries to uh, explore the harms that this is having on our democracy through voting, uh, the harms it is having to public safety in the form of threats, and the harm it is having to the rule of law by encouraging vigilante violence. And so, uh, you know, the book also offers some solutions, uh, including um, one which is we have to commit ourselves to truth. We can't, you know, kind of go along with the con just because we care more about our allegiance with a certain side or a certain political party we have to you know, be skeptical and we have to um, seek truth to be a truly self-governing nation. Now, this is a problem that it seems to me, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that came to light really as a result of the 2016 election. Is that something that you, your research has found? Yes, so you know, it's a, it's a yes and a no. For sure, it's, uh, it's what put this issue on my radar screen. You know, Robert Mueller wrote a report, and I think a lot of attention gets paid to his conclusions regarding Donald Trump. But, you know, to me, more importantly, were his conclusions regarding Russia, where he found that uh, the Russian Internet Research Agency was uh, conducting an influence campaign online aimed at the American election and designed to sow division. Uh, there were people who had false accounts that they detected with names like Blacktivist or um, United Muslims of America. Uh, Tennessee GOP, Heart of Texas, and people there would pose as members of certain groups and say things designed to um, either inflame or align people with their group that were not genuine whatsoever. Their whole goal was to sow discord. Um, and so in that way, my answer to your question is yes. But I, I also think that um, you know propaganda has been around for centuries, but what's new about it is the technology that enables people to deceive others about who they are and to spread their messages very quickly. Now, in this country, we have the Constitution, and we obviously have constitutional protections, and those are obviously great things. Uh, however, those things arguably limit the legal mechanisms by which we can regulate disinformation, because disinformation is an extension of information, which is an extension of speech. What are the legal mechanisms in place that can help in fighting these kinds of issues. Yeah, you raise a really good point, Dimitri. I mean, one of the challenges, and I talk about this in the book, is that those who engage in disinformation are really exploiting some of our very best freedoms against us. We, of course, cherish our right to free speech in this country. And so any effort to regulate speech gets labeled censorship. Um, and it's a real obstacle, and we have to make sure that we're not silencing voices, um, even voices that say things that are un popular or controversial. But I still think that there are things that we can do that focus on regulating processes 
uh, without regulating content that would comply with the First Amendment right to free speech. So for example, um, on the internet, right now it's really kind of a wild, wild west, unregulated space. And in many ways it is what has allowed the internet to grow and thrive and innovate and be creative. But um, it, it also allows you know, space for people to engage in disinformation, lies, threats, harassment, and other kinds of things. But I think one of the things that we could do is um, regulate the algorithms that social media companies use. You know, there's this whistleblower named Frances Haugen at Facebook who came in and testified before Congress and she said, it's not the content, it's the algorithms. And there are algorithms on Facebook and other outlets that push certain content to us. And what she revealed is that at least for a time, Facebook was pushing content that would engender outrage because the more outraged someone was, the more uh, they were li likely they were to stay on the platform for longer. And so uh, there was, we would re receive the most um, vitriolic content and the nice content would uh, hover toward the bottom. And so um, we could prohibit that sort of manipulative type of algorithm, or if we're, um, if we don't want to do that, we could just even require the disclosure of algorithms. That sort of transparency would at least allow customers to understand how they're being manipulated so that they can decide whether they wanna participate or opt out. So that's one thing that we can do. I think other things we can do that do not run afoul of the First Amendment is just educating people about some of the tactics of disinformation and how to spot disinformation online. I don't wanna put all of the burden on the user because I think that social media platforms bear some responsibility, but you know, we the people can educate ourselves uh, to help us detect these things. And then finally, I think that um, technology itself can be used to solve some of these problems. Uh, you know, right now there is a researcher at the University of Michigan Dearborn who is developing AI tools to identify deep fakes online that have been created through AI. Uh, so it can tell if it's not a person's real voice or not a real video image of someone. Um, so I think there could be some te technological solutions to this as well. And I'm sure you thought about that uh in terms of the development of ai right because that could add a whole nother dimension to things like this that are really unforeseen that nobody's ever dealt with nobody's even encountered uh in years prior how dangerous of a development is ai you know i think it's like all technology you know just like the uh you know tnt dynamite uh it can be used as a tool or it can be used as a weapon and so i think we have to be mindful of both of those uses i think we are better served when we approach these things with some caution and we uh, we start with some regulation as opposed to just letting people develop on, on their own and then once something becomes a problem trying to tame it or rein it in um, but you know AI can be a wonderful thing it can help us um, in researching things it can help us in uh, you know prototypes and modeling and all kinds of interesting things that could be useful to um, advancing human progress but it can also be used to deceive. Uh, you know, just recently in the New Hampshire primary, uh, there were some uh, AI-generated uh, clone phone calls that made it sound like Joe Biden's voice urging Democratic voters to stay home and not vote. Um, and that turned out to be generated by AI. So uh, in that way, there can be a lot of danger through artificial intelligence. There were doctored photos, you know, AI-generated photos of Donald Trump being arrested last year when no such thing happened, uh, you know, being tackled by police officers. And it's very easy for someone to see or hear those things and believe them to be true. Um, and so I think 
getting our arms around what is going to be appropriate use of AI and also educating the public um, about how to spot AI and how to be skeptical. But, you know, one worry is that if um, if you don't believe anything, then uh, there's there's no accountability for people who do engage in bad behavior. And you say that, you know, that was that was all fake. <laughs> How important is parenting here? Because I see, it, it seems to me rather that the legal mechanisms, legislative action, uh, perhaps, can only go so far. What can be done to have uh, parents govern their kids, govern their families in such a way so as to prevent the harmful spread of disinformation? Yeah, well, parenting is part of it, but some of this is adults, you know, who are uh, reading these things and believing these things. <clears throat> but I think parents can, uh, you know, certainly impose rules with their kids about the appropriate use of social media, when to use it, when not to use it. I think a lesson for all of us is um, before we share any information online, we should be skeptical and we should try to determine its accuracy before we do that. I'll, I'll tell you just a quick story about myself. A few years ago, um, I remember seeing something on social media. Um, it looked like it came from a credible source from ESPN. And it said that Patrick Mahomes, the uh, star quarterback in the NFL, uh, was refusing to take another snap for his team, the Kansas City Chiefs, until they changed their name to something that was not offensive to Native Americans. And I read that and I thought, wow, that's a big deal. And I quickly retweeted it and sent it along. And then later in the day, I was talking to my husband and son and I said, did you guys see this thing about Patrick Mahomes? And they said, no, I haven't seen anything about it. And I started telling it to them and they said, you know, I wonder if that's true. That, that sounds like it could be made up. And as I was saying it out loud, it occurred to me that, yeah, it does sound kind of made up, doesn't it? So I said, I'll find it. I'll show you. And so I started digging uh, to see if I could find it. And I did. And I found the original tweet. And only then did I notice that it had been tweeted out by ESPN Sprots Center and not Sports Center. It was a, you know, a, a typo and it was a, a fake account making up fake news. And I had fallen for it. And I think the lesson there is that before you pass on something, uh, that you think might be newsworthy, it pays to investigate it a little bit. Uh, is there any other news outlet that's reporting the same thing? Because if not, um, maybe it's not credible and you ought to pause a minute before you forward that on. So I think that's something parents can teach children. I think that's something we should teach in schools. Um, and I think it's something all of us should practice is you know having a critical eye for that which is accurate, that which is not, and to refrain from passing it on if we're not sure whether something is true. Now, one of the problems that you point out is the fear that this is contributing to polarization in our society. Why is combating that so important? Yeah, so, um, you know, one of the tactics that I talk about in the book is something that's known as the either-or fallacy. That's a tactic debaters use. Um, and the idea is, I'm going to create a world in which there are only two sides to every issue. There is the red view and the blue view. There is progressive and there is conservative, there is uh, Republican and there is Democratic, and, and that's it. And, and there's nothing in between. And that turns into some overly simplistic thinking. It reduces everything to you know bumper sticker logic, and it removes any nuance and any room for compromise. Politics is all about the art of compromise. I mean, just look at our immigration issues right now. Uh, you either have to believe that we um, should have open borders and let everybody in, or we have to close the border and let nobody in. Now, neither of those positions is either an accurate possibility under the current law, um, and neither reflects any nuance for the policy um, 
preferences of the other. I mean, real solutions are going to require some uh, conversations, some nuance, some, well, can we, you know, can we do this, but not that? Um, and I think that when we push people into these two extreme camps and think that that's all, that's all the option we have, it, it takes people out of the conversation of talking about nuanced solutions and compromise solutions, which are actually what's necessary to get things done. And it's why I think we have so much gridlock in Congress and we can't get anything done. It's because everybody demands political purity to their cause and no one wants to be seen as you know, weak or a traitor or less than zealous on their side's position. You know, something surprising that was noted in your book was this idea that America is particularly vulnerable to disinformation. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's because of our very freedoms. Uh, you know, we're vulnerable because we so cherish First Amendment speech. We have a lot of case law out of the Supreme Court that protects free speech and free elections. Uh, you know, so it gives us things like the Citizens United case out of the Supreme Court that protects the right of corporations and labor unions and other groups to uh, give unlimited amounts of money online as long as they don't coordinate with candidates. And, and so that puts the role of, you know, big money gives gets a very prominent role in our politics. And if they want to say something that's not accurate or that's misleading in some way, they have a lot of power to do that. Um, same with, you know, free speech and censorship. There are cases right now working their way in the Supreme Court um, about whether a presidential administration can ask social media platforms to take down false claims about, you know, COVID vaccines or other kinds of things. Um, and even whether social media platforms themselves can moderate content and take down things that they believe are false. Uh, because of those cherished values of First Amendment free speech, it can be very difficult to make changes. You know, I mean, I, I, I value free speech as much as anybody, but uh, I think I recognize that it creates problems for our, ourselves. Now, of course, no right under the Constitution is absolute. Uh, even a, a fundamental right like free speech may be limited if there is a compelling governmental interest and if that interest, uh, if there's a, a restriction that is narrowly tailored to achieve that interest. So I think there's some modest things we can do to regulate social media as long as we demonstrate that there's this compelling need and the restriction is no broader than is necessary. There's a great line in a Supreme Court case uh, that says the Bill of Rights is not a suicide pact. And so we can we can use a little pragmatism here along with um, our uh, our cherished rights to get to a solution, I hope, that um, does not cause us to uh, you know, self self uh, demolish our country. Professor, I'd like to talk to you a bit about your career and particularly your career in public service. Now, you were a U.S. attorney uh, in uh, Michigan. Was your experience that your job was more of a lawyer or was there a political element to that job? Uh, not for the run-of-the-mill prosecutor, obviously, but somebody in your position who was the head of the office. Um, so, no, in terms of politics, the way we think of it in Republican and Democrat, I suppose, yes, in terms of um, managing an office, managing uh, law enforcement, and um, trying to be a successful partner in the community. So, uh, you know, first I was an assistant U.S. attorney where I prosecuted cases, but then as the U.S. attorney, um, you know, one of the jobs that our Attorney General Eric Holder gave to us was don't just be case processors, be community problem solvers. And so that meant um, we're not just going to take every case that comes across our desk, but 
we need to be out there meeting with stakeholders to understand what should be the most important issues in our community. At a U.S. Attorney's Office, we don't have the resources to, to prosecute every case that might come across our desk. We averaged about 1,000 cases a year. And so that meant we had to use our scarce resources in ways that had the most bang for the buck, so to speak, would make the greatest positive impact in the community. And you can only do that if you're out there talking to people in the community um, about what the needs are. And so we identified our priorities as uh, reducing violent crime, addressing public corruption, civil rights, and fraud cases. And you know those were generally the areas that we tried to focus our efforts on. Um, and then you know that's a constant reassessment, constantly going out and talking to people about that. But I, I'm not sure I would call that political. But you did have to talk with people and get out in the community, meet with stakeholders, and understand the needs so that we could best serve them. What, in your view, is the most important part of running a prosecutor's office? I think um, setting the culture of integrity is the most important part of, of running the office. I mean, certainly there are things like you have to manage the budget. You can't blow all the money. Um, you have to make sure people get paid. You have to make sure people get hired, that people get trained, that people have the resources they need to do their jobs. But I think uh, above all, the most important thing, and I saw this as a prosecutor in public corruption cases as well, that when an organization went bad, there was usually somebody at the top who was telling them either explicitly or implicitly that the rules don't matter, do what you want. There's no accountability when people break the rules. And so I think setting a tone, setting expectations, communicating in word and deed that integrity matters in what we do, I think is the most important thing that a prosecutor can do. I would have a talk with all of our prosecutors when they first started about how the importance of, of every case was about integrity. And as long as people acted with integrity, we would have their backs if they made mistakes. Um, but uh, hundreds, thousands of prosecutors had worked for decades to build a good reputation for the United States of America. And when they went into that courtroom and said that they were there on behalf of the United States of America, um, they need to carry with them the responsibility uh, to, to bring that integrity with them and not to, to um, burn that integrity for the rest of us. So, um, you know, it's something we talked about quite a bit at the office. I think you have to talk about it, remind yourself of how important it is, but also to make sure that we acted upon it by, you know, always disclosing information to the other side, even when it, you know, was uh, not favorable to our case because of our ethical duty to do so. Um, not playing games when it came to sharing discovery information or witness lists. Uh, you know, our, our job was to um, seek justice and do what is in the best interest of justice, not just what might be best for winning a case. Now, in terms of public corruption cases, obviously you have vast experience in that. You prosecuted Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick. How difficult is it to uh, kind of walk that fine line in those kinds of cases? Because while you're obviously seeking to hold somebody accountable for doing something wrong, there is the bigger picture of ensuring the public that politicians and public servants still act with integrity, right? You don't want to prosecute a case such that the public loses faith in the system, so to speak. How difficult is, to, uh, is it to walk that line? Um, it is difficult um, because I think that you have to respect the role that the person performs in society, and you have to make sure that you are charging them with something that is actually a crime and not just sort of shady behavior. Uh, you know, we had a phrase in our office where we talked about something might um, might not be crime, but slime. Um, you know, just because somebody takes a, a gift or contribution um, doesn't necessarily mean that they've committed a crime. Our system allows 
a lot of money to influence uh, politics. But where it becomes a crime is when a person accepts money in exchange for performing an official act. Like, you know, the only reason they voted in favor of that garbage hauling contract for your company is because you paid them a $5,000 kickback. You know, that is clearly illegal behavior. Um, we had to be very careful to avoid publicly revealing that we were investigating a case until we were ready to charge the case. Um, sometimes there's an investigation that ultimately does not result in charges for whatever reason. We can't prove the case or it turns out there's nothing illegal here. Um, we don't want to besmirch the reputation of somebody needlessly when they're not going to be charged with the crime. So making sure that a case um, does not have leaks is also an important part of that equation. Um, and then also sometimes there's public pressure to charge somebody with a crime or to charge them quickly, um, which is easier said than done. Um, you know, in the Kilpatrick case that you mentioned, uh, there are all kinds of newspaper articles that why why hasn't he been charged yet? He should be charged. Everybody knows, you know, he's committed these crimes, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, you have to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a very high standard, and it should be. And so, um, you know, we took we took a lot of time in making sure that we had all the evidence that we needed, and we were convinced that not only we believed that uh, he was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, but that we could prove it to a unanimous jury, um, and uh, of you know individual citizens drawn from Detroit and uh, surrounding neighborhoods. And, um, you know, it's a, it, the, the system is designed so that um, 10 guilty would go free before one innocent person be convicted. And that's a good thing. I think we don't want people to risk being convicted uh, who are innocent. But as a result, um, evidence has to be far more solid than I think people sometimes appreciate by just watching the, you know, the crime shows on TV. You did mention a few times the desire to prevent things like wrongful convictions and Brady violations and other forms of prosecutorial misconduct. Is the discretion afforded to prosecutors in the United States too wide? Is there a way to curb it if it needs to be curbed? Uh, curb, or is it just a consequence of any system that you'll need some subjective decision-making authority to be exercised by somebody prosecuting a case? Yeah, you know, I think there are checks on prosecutorial discretion. But I don't know that you can ever eliminate it. I mean, one is our separation of powers under the Constitution says that it is the executive branch that enforces the laws. And so you can't really have the judge in there second guessing, you know, prosecution decisions. Um, a, a court does not know what the evidence is. The court does not know what the priorities are. A court does not know what related cases might be coming down the road. And so I think it's difficult, and I, I think it is inevitable that you need somebody there exercising discretion. You know, the alternative would be that every violation of the law gets prosecuted, and I don't think we want that either. I think, you know, there are certainly times when um, our prosecutors have given somebody a break just because they thought they deserved it, or, um, you know, the case had evidentiary problems or wasn't worth um, the, uh, the resources it would take. There was a time when we really shifted our prosecutions in um, drug cases, for example, from marijuana to opioids, because we saw opioids as causing a lot of deaths and marijuana, not so many. And so we had to shift that. If somebody told me I had to enforce every law that was on the books, you know, we would lose all of our discretion to prioritize. We would be doing marijuana cases all day because there was so much of it and never getting to maybe the more important opioid cases or public corruption cases or other kinds of things. So I think it's inevitable. Um, one other alternative is you have, you know, these mandatory minimums 
those are not so great either, I don't think. Uh, I think having an individualized assessment of a defendant and of the crime is probably the most fair. Um, you know, the concern is that either explicit or implicit biases play in and cause people to be treated differently. I'm not sure how you avoid that other than to train prosecutors to recognize their own biases and to have a supervisory chain that reviews case decisions so that there can be some uniformity across an office as to how conduct gets charged. Now, Professor, you do commentary and analysis on a variety of legal topics, including some of the issues that Donald Trump is involved in right now. I do want to ask you one question about um, broad question about some of the issues in which he's involved. The term political prosecution, and I put that in quotes, is thrown around a lot and nobody really knows what it means. And Donald Trump right now is involved in several cases. And there are narratives out there that one or more of them may be the result of a political prosecution. How important is it for our society to do away with even the perception that some of these cases may be politically motivated? Again, no way to ever prove that, even if they were, presumably. But how important is it to do away with that whole narrative in general? Yeah, I think it's important that the public um, have confidence in the criminal justice system. And if they believe the system is charging people based solely on politics, I think it really undermines uh, the work of a prosecutor's office and the entire criminal justice system. I mean, there are certainly people who believe when Donald Trump says uh, he's only been charged because Joe Biden has uh, put uh, Jack Smith up to it and uh, you know instructed him to file these charges because he's the front runner in the election. I think that's really corrosive. Um, if people believe that, uh, you know, he's also said things like, you know, the FBI are a disgrace and they plant evidence and other kinds of things like that. Um, I think you see it when uh, the FBI knocks on a door and says, you know, we are investigating a kidnapping. And can we talk to you about things you might have seen? People are less likely to open the door and answer those questions. When an FBI agent testifies on the stand in any kind of case, even a bank robbery uh, here in Michigan, uh, a jury is less likely to believe that agent if they have uh, heard, um, you know, the president or former president say that they're a disgrace and that they plant evidence. And so I think it makes it harder for law enforcement to do their jobs when they believe when people believe the system is corrupt, which means um, we're, we're going to have unaddressed crime in our country and ultimately public safety will suffer. Now, Professor, after the practice of law, you decided to go into teaching. Why did you do that? And what does the future hold in terms of your work? Is it in writing? Is it in the practice of law teaching or something else or a combination of those things? Yeah, um, you know, I'm really happy teaching. Um, I'd be quite content to stay here. Uh, it's really enjoyable. I, uh, uh, I get to, uh, a chance to work with these incredibly bright, incredibly idealistic young people. And it really gives me hope. Uh, you know, sometimes the news can... Um, really get you down. But talking to young people who are excited about the law and excited about making a difference really gives me great um, hope and great joy. And so I love it. Um, I love a chance to uh, teach students. You know, at this point in my career, I just want to have a, a positive impact on others, even if only in a modest way. And I am finding it here at the University of Michigan Law School. Do you ever anticipate practicing law again on some level? I don't know. Um, I like the practice of law, maybe. I mean, I, I find that my work here uh, to date has been very challenging. You know, one of the things that I like about academia that is different from being in practice is you have space 
to think a little harder and a little longer, not only about what the law is, but about what the law should be. And so, you know, for example, my book, it's not something I ever would have had time to do as a practicing lawyer, because as you know, there's always a deadline, right? You're always putting out a fire, you're always writing a brief, you're always preparing for something, uh, whatever is coming up in court in the, in the upcoming week. Uh, whereas here, you know, I'm not teaching in the summers, that's time for research. And, you know, there is a little bit of an ivory tower aspect, but it's a good thing, I think, that, uh, you know, there's time to sit and think and read and uh, reflect about what is it we're doing and is there a way we could be doing things better. And so I've really enjoyed that. Now, maybe the time will come when uh, I get back into practice, because there is something very satisfying about that as well. Helping people address real problems um, is very satisfying. And so maybe the day will come. But for now, I'm really enjoying uh, the work that I get to do here. Professor, thank you so much for your time, for giving me uh, your valuable time, your insight, and some of your views and positions on various topics. Thank you so much. You're, you bet. Thank you very much, Dimitri.